We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. Welcome back. It's the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always, my co-host Nick Villato. Coming to you today to break down our thoughts and our key takeaways from the All-22 coaches film on the Giants offense in their second preseason game against the Carolina Panthers. For those of you who don't know, but you probably all do, the Giants played some starters in this one finally. Daniel Jones got one series, Andrew Thomas even. Evan Neal. Finally, we got a chance to see Evan Neal, the new and hopefully improved Evan Neal this preseason. JMS and the interior guys were playing earlier this preseason, but they played again. We saw some Isaiah Hodgins. We had seen him previously. We saw some Paris Campbell for the first time. And then we saw the clear now, at least clear to me, and I'm sure you agree with this, Nick, focal point of the offense in 2023 of the passing game, I should say. Maybe Barkley's still the offense. And that's Darren Waller. And we got to see what he can do in this offense and what the coaches have in store for him. And by the way, that was just a little bit of what he can do and what the coaches have in store, because quite obviously Mike Kafka and Brian Dable are not planning to give away much. Like for as far as vanilla game plans go for a preseason game, this is probably the least vanilla preseason game plan I've seen from any Giants coaching staff in a long time. And maybe that's just how it is when you have guys like Coach, uh, Coach Kafka and Coach Dable, like as their version of vanilla is still like a lot spicier than what Jason Garrett's version of spicy is, for example, or <laughs> like that. So definitely an incredible game. Nick, I also know you were recently traveling back to New Jersey for mm-hmm. a wedding. Got a chance to hang out with my boy, Nick. We went out in Morristown on Thursday night, had some pizza at Caniglio's really good pizza spot. In my opinion, if you're from the area, I would say, honestly, their grandma pie is as good as any grandma pie I've ever had. Their other pizzas are good too, but their grandma pie is definitely on the level of any grandma pie I've ever had. Went out to Homestead, a few other bars. Homestead's probably my favorite in the area, especially like earlier in the night when it's chill and you can hang outside and like all the 20 to 25 year olds haven't arrived yet to like turn that place into a club. That's when I kind of see my way out toward the exit. We also got to play some golf, Nick. So finally I'm getting you into the sport. Of course, Nick did not really enjoy, well, he enjoyed being out there, but like he just doesn't like the sport the way I thought he might. Because I'll tell you this, for someone who doesn't play golf at all, and that's Nick Filato, he actually makes contact at a pretty good rate, um, nice. at the irons especially. So I personally, some of the shots you hit on that golf outing, we only played nine holes. Some of the shots you hit, Nick, were so crispy that it would have brought me, if I was in your shoes, back to the sport almost immediately, like the day after. Because that's what happened to me. I picked up the sport this summer three months ago. But I understand for you, it's too much standing around. It's too much waiting. I'm sure you don't love when everybody's teeing off and like you're next to tee and all that, like walking your ball and stuff like that. So 
I'm sure there are some downsides. And the whole golf etiquette thing, I just think it's positive. <laughs> They're like, oh, you can't talk. He's about to hit the ball. Like, come on. Like, we're out here drinking beers and just having a good time. Like, I can't have a conversation. I have to bring my voice down like this. My younger brother takes it so damn seriously. He has, like, golf shoes. Who buys golf shoes? Golf apparel and everything. And I just make fun of them. It, it's, it's more so it's easier to make fun of people who are really into golf than for me to enjoy it. So by hole three, I'm bored. And then I just start looking at stuff and just trashing it. Ultimately, I like going out with my friends, though. And I, and I do have somewhat of a fun time. I just can't believe people willingly do 18 holes. I think that's wild. Because well, by I'm hole three, I'm one, I want another nine. I, I There's just so, because there's so many moments throughout my round where I'm like, it clicked for maybe a few holes in a row and then I lose it. Or like, I just want the chance to practice basically as much as I can to try and get better. Um, but I understand for you. And I get it. Like there are different versions of golf too. I've played it competitive, competitively, quote unquote, meaning just like around with friends that are trying to get better. And like, we don't smoke, we don't drink. Then I played like yesterday with some friends. We, we brought Jay's on. Oh, I shouldn't know if I should say that, but it's legal nowadays in New Jersey. I had some joints on the course. We had some beers. Like it, that's a different experience in itself. And to me, that could be fun for really anyone. Though I will say this at the beginning of golf, Nick, and this is the end of our golf discussion. Cause I know shout out Sal who said like, this sucks. Now that you guys are playing golf together, we're going to hear more golf on the pod. You're going to get like two minutes here, two or three minutes here. And that's it for this episode. That's a long time, but it's okay. You'll get through it. But what was I saying? Where, where, where was I going with that tangent about golf? You oh. were talking about how you were smoking Jays, and now it's very, very evident that you were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, what was, why did I bring Sal into this? He's like, oh, we're going to hear more about golf. Um, oh, no. My, my point being, like, when I first started golf and, like, every single shot I hit, basically, with the exception of, like, one of every eight was topped. Yes, I hated being out there. I wanted to go home at times. I almost had a hissy fit once on the course where I threw a club. But now that, it, like, once you start to get consistent, with your driver and your iron and by consistent, even jump up to like 75, 80% contact, then it feels so good. And so I don't know, that's my golf spiel. But anyway, let's talk about the giants here, Nick. Um, where do you want to start here? Let's start with the coaching. We have to start with the coaching then because Brian Dable and Mike Kafka, they could give a master class on how to optimize RPO plays by leveraging Daniel Jones's mobility to put defenders into conflict on one side of the football field. And we saw that a little bit last season. We also saw it, and we're going to go over this in a little bit, on that 20-yard catch by Isaiah Hodgins. It just seems like, no, it doesn't even just seem like, it's very apparent that this coaching staff understands how to give receivers free releases, how to scheme layup throws, how to take advantage of space, timing, and the defense's intentions, and how to give their quarterback several options to choose from. Options that are reactive in nature based on the post-snap decisions of a defender or multiple defenders. And for the first time, 26-year-old Daniel Jones actually has a coaching staff that is putting him into these positions to make these layup type of throws. No knock on Daniel Jones. People will be like, oh, you're sliding. No, that is not. That's a coach's job. The coach's job is to position the players in the optimal spot, to maximize their skill sets, and to try to put them into successful situations. And that's what Mike Kafka and Brian Day will do for Daniel Jones. Not a knock on Daniel Jones, but I love to see it because Daniel Jones big, strong. You make all the throws. He's athletic. And when you have those types of brains, Mike Kafka and Brian Dable scheming plays, they're going to position this kid into advantageous spots. Yeah, one thing I want to run by you on that front, because there's something interesting that when you brought this up before the pod and I was thinking about it, like, okay, so back back in the day, maybe four, five, six years ago, when the NFL first, I think it was with the Miami Dolphins, came up with the Wildcat, right? Remember when the, when the team was, when the Dolphins were first using the Wildcat, a few teams caught on, and the idea behind it was 
It was new, A, but more importantly, B, you're getting an advantage on every run play because your quarterback is no longer not a guy on the field. Your quarterback is now a running back who could keep the ball, and you should you should at least in theory have an advantage in a, from a blocking standpoint in the run game there. It worked for a little while. It got caught. I almost feel like the Giants have found a new version of that wildcat with all these boot action plays and these pivot, reverse field, roll out like the Bellinger touchdown, all these plays that get Jones moving on the perimeter and give him an option to either run the ball or pass to one of usually three options, sometimes two options. It almost feels like the Giants are bringing back an advantage in that sense because not everyone has a quarterback who can get out on the perimeter and then be a threat as a runner. Some of these quarterbacks can't even get out on the perimeter. Others get out on the perimeter, but then always throw the ball and don't look to run. Jones can run or throw, and he has that option on every one of these uh, design plays by the Giants. And it almost feels like now they have a numbers advantage, similar to what the you know Dolphins had back in the day with the Wildcat. And I wonder if you kind of see it that way, too. I do see it that way. And specifically when we're, we're talking about these RPO plays, there's that run phase of it. That's the first option. The the blocking up front, they're all executing run blocks. They can't get down the field too much or they're going to get eligible man downfield, which really sucks. Those linebackers flow with the play every single time. And Daniel Jones reads those linebackers. He goes into the mesh point. He sees the linebackers flow because they have to respect their run fits. They have to respect the run in Saquon Barkley, who's going to be back there. Now Daniel Jones just says, all right, I'm going to tuck it. And if that end man on the line of scrimmage isn't disciplined and stays put with Daniel Jones, Daniel Jones is going to get on the edge. Those linebackers aren't catching him. All of the other players who are available to catch Daniel Jones or locate Daniel Jones, they're in coverage and they're not going to surrender their coverage. We saw this last year against the Colts. We saw this last year against the Vikings. We saw it last year a lot in the red zone, which led to some Daniel yeah. Jones touchdowns as well. Jones, that's an easy five to six yards if he just opts to keep the football. But he has the clear out element, which Darius Slayton ran on the Isaiah Hodgins play. He has the backside cross, because this is all from a condensed formation, who usually is open specifically because you're running across if it's man or match coverage. All that receiver has to do is win to the inside. And then on that play, you had the two wingbacks who were both tight ends and went to the flat, went towards the sideline just to draw defenders away from Daniel Jones. So you're just giving Daniel Jones, hey, you can run it if you want, Daniel Jones. We'll break this play down here in a little bit. Or you could throw it to Isaiah Hodgins. He threw it to Isaiah Hodgins. That's just easy money. It's scheming your receivers open. It's something that we haven't seen from a coaching staff, I feel like, for quite a while. It's scheming your receivers open and it's giving you an advantage from a number standpoint. It really is like even just thinking about back to when this first started for me last season, that Carolina game week two or three, whatever that was with the Bellinger touchdown and Daniel Jones is rolling. He's on the perimeter at that point. There's one guy left because of the numbers. It's a linebacker. He now has to make the decision. Do I take this releasing tight end to the flat or do I take the quarterback? Either way, it's a win for the offense and the Giants and Capcom Dable, and it's a loss for the opposing defensive coordinator and defense because you're either taking the receiver or you're taking the quarterback. One or the other is going to be open then for either a run or the throw, which we saw in that case, the Bellinger for the touchdown. I felt like it was a similar play when they did the double, you know, reverse, or I'm sorry, like the double fake counter run to the rollout to the boot action left to the throw to Bellinger for the touchdown in the preseason game. If they wanted to, and there was an opening, and the, the, the you know the linebackers, the safeties had flowed so far in the direction of the receivers there, Jones could have easily ran that in. He could have powered it through, put that in. Obviously, preseason, you don't want to see him doing that. But the point being, it's an option at all times, and it puts the defense at a disadvantage because most teams are operating with a quarterback who can only throw the ball, really, and can only is not a runner on any play. Not just the design plays, like the plays that are off script, the scrambles, things of that nature. Go ahead. 
It's also the pre-snap phase. If you go back to that week two game against Carolina, Richie James ran a motion, a jet motion right before the snap, and he cleared out the zone defender to allow Daniel Bellinger to be isolated against one other defender. But the thing is, Daniel Jones was rolling in that direction. So what's up with that defender? He either has to take Daniel Jones or stay with Daniel Bellinger. He is in conflict. And whatever decision he makes, Daniel Jones is going to make him pay. And that's a product of the system putting Daniel Jones in that spot to just make one decision based off of what the defender is doing. And the craziest thing about this, Nick, is it's like, you have somebody like Daniel Jones' skill set, and it took three different coordinators slash coaches, whatever you want to give the credit to, Capco, Capco or Dable, to figure out that this is the best way to use him in the red zone, right? Because there were multiple coaching staffs where the Giants, before last season, where, let's be honest, the Giants didn't have insane talent around Jones last season, outside of Barkley, who they've had all of Jones, who Jones has had all of his career. It's pretty similar to the talent he had under Garrett and Shermer. Maybe a little different with Shermer with OBJ the first year, whatever. Point being, like, it took them a while to figure it took whoever the giants a while to figure this out. And yet at the same time, when you put the quarterback in position, it almost get in this position. It almost like we were talking about before gives you this edge in the red zone that the giants and previously had. And it showed up in the numbers. The giants went from one of the least efficient red zone offenses to one of the most efficient in the snap of a finger. And I actually had a chance to talk. I don't know if you saw this, Nick, but earlier this off season, Mike Kafka did like a Q and a on Twitter with, um, Ted Nguyen and a few other people. And I asked, I had, luckily enough, I had a chance to ask him a question. I asked him about the red zone offense and you guys can go back and listen to that. He was so detailed in explaining like how, what goes into crafting these red zone plays and how important what you just talked about putting these defenders in conflict is in a tight space, like the red zone. You have such a small margin for error down there with the back of the end zone, obviously almost acting as like a second safety or the third, whatever you want to call it, another defender. So it's just interesting to hear how different coaches do it. And I think the pre-snap motion plays a big role there too. Identifying zone versus man for the quarterback pre-snap is a huge help. But all the different things that Kafka and Dable have put into this have really turned the Giants into what I think now is probably a locked-in top 10 red zone offense. I think so too. And I think this coaching staff's easy, a top five coaching staff. People will be like, what are you talking about? It's like the Giants... They outperformed their expectations significantly last season. People were writing them off like Daniel Jones will pick up his fifth-year option. He sucks. The guy ends up winning a playoff game. This coaching staff, they're really instilling a culture here, a winning culture, a culture that players like Ashawn Robinson and a lot of other players around the league are like, you know what? I kind of want to go play for Brian Dable. There's a lot of respect for the New York Giants finally. Like the New York Giants name has been shit since Tom Coughlin has left. We've been a laughing stock. And we have the Jets in our town. The Jets are kind of a lot were a laughing stock as well. So they kind of absorbed a lot of it, but it was gross being a New York Giants fan. Right now, there's a lot of pride in the New York Giants. Look, look around Twitter. It's easily understandable. You have guys like Dan Orlovsky. You have all of these national talking heads highlighting the New York Giants. Brian Balding are always doing stuff on the New York Giants. It's not just because it's the New York market. It's because they're very exciting and they're doing something very fresh. Exactly. And Orlovsky mentioned, you know, Dable and Kafka is potentially one of these top coaching staffs in the NFL right now. We This might be fun for a larger, for like a podcast at some point, Nick. So let's not go into too, too much detail about this. But from an unbiased standpoint, taking yourself outside of your role as a Giants content creator for a minute. Which coaching staffs would you take over the Giants, Dable, Kafka, Wink at this time right now? And I'm going just the big guys, the coordinators and the head coach. Because for me, at this stage of it, Nick, like I would probably take Reed and the Chiefs, right? I don't know if I would take like Bill O'Brien and Bill Belichick and Steve Belichick and Bill Belichick at this point. Like, I just don't know if I would prefer yeah. them as the coaches. So I'm not going to put them in it, even though I know they're historically the best coach. He's the best coach of all time. But right now, it just doesn't feel that way, especially given their offensive coordinator situation versus the Giants offensive system. So right now it's like Reed, right? For sure. Shanahan, for sure. 
And like after that, dude, I I don't know if I'm taking any other coaching staff over the Giants. Unbiased. Like, I don't know. You name one. If you're in the comments now, you can name some and we can debate them. And maybe again, this will be fun to like break down every one for a different podcast. Yeah. But those are the only two that stand to mind as the locks. The locks. I think Mike McDaniel, Vic Fangio is an interesting pairing. I'll, I'll give sure. him that. You can look at guys like Pete Carroll who have been around for a while. People might be like, well, they're really established. It's like, I get that they're established and they have a long track record. Mike Kafka has only been a coordinator for one year, but he at least proved to me that he's very adaptive. We had so many different offenses, the Giants last season. And now you add players like Darren Waller and Jalen Hyatt. I don't know if Saquon Barkley is going to see too many seven, eight man boxes depending on the situation, obviously third and short and stuff like that. Yeah. But when you can stretch the field, you're going to see more too high. It's going to open up a lot of space in the middle of the field. It's going to open up a lot of space for Saquon Barkley. And if this offensive line can stay healthy and John Michael Schmitz can play to somewhat of a level like Creed Humphrey did in his rookie season, this rushing attack can really take off. And that's with a mobile quarterback as well. There's just a lot going for this Giants offense. I don't remember being this excited for a Giants team and a Giants offense in my entire adult life. Interesting. I have to think back if I had any moments, uh, at least in my adult life, where I'd been more excited before season. There's a uh, caveat. There's a caveat, though. I missed yeah, the first couple yeah. years of my adult life when the Giants were in the Super Bowl prime. <laughs> yeah, Nick was a Marine. So obviously, I was more excited during that period of time. I think I hyped myself into 2017, even though I went knowing going into that season, knowing they effed up by not going Whitworth over Brandon Marshall. I still just like convinced myself like with Eli that and like with how good he played in that playoff game and how screwed he got by the drops that they were going to be able to repeat. And maybe I was a little more hyped then. Um, and this could be, you know, on me, if you guys consider that, I know, you know, it's so funny, Nick, we put out a video last week talking about how the Giants passing game is going to involve praising Jones for pretty much the whole video. And then there's like multiple people in the comments calling us Jones haters, just absolutely insane. The rhetoric on Jones, but point being, I'll say this comment anyway, going into that 2017 season, I was probably a little more excited because Eli Manning had done it. He had won two Super Bowls, and I believe that he had that in him in the playoffs. Sorry if this offends you, but I haven't seen that yet from Jones. He hasn't won two Super Bowls. I can't believe people would maybe be offended by comparing, not comparing Jones to Eli Manning, but here we are. Everything's sensitive for, for, for the people who are on, you know, the crazy side of the Jones scale. But look, I am almost as excited as I am then because we have as crazy as it sounds, in my opinion, better coaching. I know that sounds crazy too with Tom Coughlin there, but you know me, Nick, and we've discussed in the past, I'm more concerned with the schematics on offense and defense than the general, I'm the head coach of this team. I brought everyone together, especially when I've already seen Brian Dable bring this team together from the general coaching standpoint. Like that season, the Giants uh, going into, um, even back in like the Super Bowl years, like for the Giants, like Perry Perry Fuel, I believe, was one of the coordinators for one of those Super Bowls. And like anyone who watched the Perry Fuel defenses knew that he was just simply reliant on the front four getting pressure. It was not good, not well schemed in the back end. And even on offense, it was like a one system. It was Kevin Gilbride with the run and shoot with the option route system. And it was just relying on these QBs and quarterback, I'm sorry, receivers having great chemistry. That was less system-based, more rely-based, I felt like, and more receiver-based. So definitely think the coaching is at an all-time high for the Giants right now. And I'm, I'm really excited about it. Let's get into some of these plays and show the audience 
why this coaching staff is superior to many others coaching staffs. And one other thing that we didn't even mention, we'll see it on the last play, the Eric Gray touchdown. It's the diversified rushing attack that the Giants employed. We talked about it a lot last year with the wham block. You need a really physical tight end to pull stuff like that off. And Daniel Bellinger is that. He is that guy. He's that physical tight end through the wham block on the two wide shade, allowed JMS, allowed Evan Neal to climb up to the second level. Eric Gray wasn't touched until he was like six yards down the field. Right. Those are just easy ways to to spring your rushing attack and also keep in the defensive lineman's head. Hey, they could do some funky shit here. Okay. Mm -hmm. I might not be blocked by this guard, this center. You can see he goes up field and he's like, oh man, I'm going to get trapped or whammed. And then boom, Daniel Bellinger hits him. But first, Dan, I want to start with the first play of the game. Darren Waller's just quick little catch, but I just love the simplicity of this play because the Giants, as you can see on the screen now, oh, sweet, you can see my arrow. All right. He's got Darren Waller, who's motioning from the three-by-one set to the backside of, I think that's Darius Slayton, if I'm not mistaken. And you're going to see right at the snap, he's basically going to stack right behind Darius Slayton. He's going to release in the same path as Darius Slayton. What is that going to do to number seven right here? Number seven, who is responsible for Darren Waller, is going to flow to the outside because the condensed formation, everybody is inside the numbers, is going to present the threat to number seven that Darren Waller could just run to the flat. It's going to be a quick, easy yards catch, run up the sidelines. So number seven flows over the top of Darius Slayton. Now Darius Slayton is creating a pick against number seven. And then this defender right here is at too far of a depth to come down and hit Darren Waller. So all Darren Waller has to do is retrace Darius Slayton's steps and then break over the middle of the field on a quick little slant, catch the football, easy yards. And it it's all just comes down to understanding where you are in the field, what the defense is going to do, the space on the field that you are at, and then just throwing the football right out of the break to Darren Waller. That's exactly what happens. This is a great play for Daniel Jones to just read that defender, see what he does, and then just attack. It's exactly what happens. Easy yards for the New York Giants. And it was a nice job by Jones. So a little subtle thing I picked up on this play. I think when I watched the first time, a little a nice job by Jones dealing with a pretty low snap. This was not a good snap by John Michael Schmitz here. Jones got the release out fast, despite kind of having to go really low to collect the snap. You can see pitch catch. I don't like seeing Darren Waller get hit high like that. It's one thing I, I didn't love, but yeah, he took a lot of game and I did not love that at all either. <laughs> This is probably one of my favorite plays. This is the play that Dan and I were referencing a little bit earlier. You got two wingbacks and 12 personnel with Darren Waller to the boundary side and Daniel Bellinger to the field side. See, everybody's aligned inside the numbers and it's pistol. Did the Giants run pistol that much last year, Dan? Not only did they not run pistol that much last year, they didn't run, at least from my memory, I can't remember a single time they had two wingbacks in a formation. And NFL teams just specifically don't really use wingbacks very often. The Giants did when they would employ stuff like this. This is an RPO pass. So we'll see it a little bit better on the end zone angle, but I'm going to play this out real quick. Goes into the mesh point. Now he's on the roll. And who is accounting for Daniel Jones? Nobody there. You're going to see it better on the end zone angle. But the fact that both of these wingbacks are going to go to the flat, it's going to draw the safety down this way. Darius Slayton is going to clear out, occupying both of the deep uh, ma uh, match defenders. It looks like it's a cover three type of match. You're going to have both of these... Both of these players right here in the flat, Daniel Jones, there's no one who can get him because 91 Kobe Jones was not disciplined as the end man on line of scrimmage. And you had an outside leverage defender against a reduced split Isaiah Hodgins who's breaking over the middle of the field. This is easy money right here. This is easy scheming for the Giants. And Jones ends up just making them pay because we'll look at it from here because it's an RPO. So you have to have the run element. First, you have Brita behind Jones. No one's going to see Brita behind Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones like six foot five. The guy's gigantic, right? So they're going to go into the mesh point. They bring everybody in last second to the wing back, really just kind of mess with the heads of the Carolina Panthers. 
And you're going to go into this mesh point. Jones is going to read what's going on here. He decides to keep it. You're going to have Darren Waller. That's going to remove this player. He gets sucked in far. Defense is screwed at this point, Dan. Isaiah Hodgins breaking over the middle field. You don't even see the defender that's on him. Just pitch it to him. But Daniel Jones, if he wanted to, Darren Waller continues out here. He can run and pick up six, seven, eight, nine yards, something like that. So it's just putting these defenders in conflict. And ironically enough, we saw it against Carolina last year in the Daniel Bellinger touchdown. But I love this type of run pass option. And this is an explosive play that they generated out of a 12 personnel look because they had the quote unquote 12 personnel look because they had Waller and Bellinger on the field. Another one of their explosive pass plays from the game or one that they just missed based on, I think it was the one that Waller got hit on and dropped was out of 13 personnel technically with Waller being one of those tight ends on the field. And, you know, everything was so condensed. It really looked like a run. They sold the run and then came out of nowhere with a little two man route, something they did a really good job of last year and were able to generate an explosive opportunity in the past game that one wasn't completed obviously it was dropped but this one 20 yards to Hodgins out of 12 personnel is an explosive play it's an explosive play and it's something that the Giants did not have a lot of last year but I'm expecting a lot more because of stuff like this and also I think Jones is going to uncork it a little bit especially when you have guys like Jalen Hyatt which we'll see in a little bit even though that was Tyrod Taylor but I want to look at this red zone play as well so first the Giants start it's a single back you have 12 personnel with Daniel Bellinger as the Y so the Giants initially align with Darren Waller outside the numbers. Do a good job motioning him inside. What is that going to do? 23 is going to follow Darren Waller. So now you have a lot of space outside the numbers here. Daniel Bellinger is going to act like he's going to block first. And then you'll see Darren Waller run through the outside shoulder of that defender. He's going to draw the attention and also create a legal pick for Daniel Bellinger. Right behind Daniel Bellinger at the snap, Daniel Bellinger is going to block and then Darren Waller is going to run right through the outside shoulder of 49, which is going to force this defender to gain depth because it's Darren Waller in the red zone. I mean, you're going to be really scared of that. And Daniel Bellinger's not a threat right now because he's blocking the end man on the line of scrimmage, but it was all a ruse. Daniel Jones just fakes the handoff, slides out. Good throw by Daniel Jones, by the way, to get it over the top, right to Daniel Bellinger for a touchdown. Great scheming in the red zone. Yeah, another example, if you roll that one back real quick, of Jones doing a couple things here that I like. One the athleticism to flip his hips there and get into a position where he can throw the football too. And most importantly for me is another example of Jones, something he worked on this off season. It showed up in the preseason uh, before this, it showed up in training or not preseason the training camp before this in the joint practices, changing his arm slot to make this throw. He has to change his arm slot to get this ball over the defender here who comes free off the chip and release. And he's able to do it, change the trajectory of the ball, get it out to the receiver on time for the touchdown. And this is another example of like, you know, in this, if, if Jones wants to not in this specific play, because the, I think the defender took a nice angle, but sometimes the defender is going to take a different angle there. And he's also going to have the option to run. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. According to indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Nick, you ever been in the spot where you just felt like, I've got a few hours to go. I'm going to this game. I'm buying tickets. I don't have the tickets yet. You're stressing. The anxiety is at an all-time high. And you're trying to figure out what the heck you can do to get to this game. That happened to me a few years ago when the Wisconsin Badgers made the Sweet 16 game in the Madison Square Garden. My dad, diehard Badgers fan, the reason I went to Wisconsin, the reason I am a Badgers fan, I needed to get him tickets for that game. It was his birthday. So I'm stressing. I don't know what to do. And then, boom, I figure it out. I use the Game Time app. The Game Time app is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all sports, music, comedy, and anything near you. They got killer deals, last minute tickets. You click open the app, and you're shocked to see that you can actually go to these games having a good time and not actually have to pay so much money that it breaks your bank account. Stanley Cup final week one this past season. I used the Game Time app last second. It was actually past the time of puck drop. Went on the app. I was in Vegas, saw the Vegas Golden Knights defeat the Florida Panthers. And I also used the Game Time app to buy my entire family when they came out here to Phoenix to visit me to see Tom Segura's special, which is actually the same special Netflix used for their videotapings. And I love it because you can find so much on the app. Like you get an actual image of the seat view, not like you're buying a seat with an obstructed view. It's an actual image. You know what you're getting. Lowest prices that I've seen by far, and that's their guarantee. You get event cancellation protection, job loss protection. They go all out here to make sure that this is a great experience for the user. Snag the tickets without the stress of, with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use the code BANTER. That's B A N T E R for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem the code BANTER, B A N T E R, for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. He's also going to have the option to run. But the way I look at this play, it's brilliant because Darren Waller creates that pick. But it's also brilliant because there's going to be about a second or so where there's an unblocked defender running at Daniel Jones. And that puts right. a lot of pressure on Daniel Jones. And it also puts a burden on Daniel Bellinger, who was initially blocking that player. So Daniel Bellinger has to like violently like rip him down or do something to deter him from exploding into his quarterback. And that's what you see here. And first, he opens to the left. It's the counter type of element even though there's not a puller, just kind of faking out the defense. And now he's going to roll in this direction. And at this moment, Daniel Jones needs to flip his hips, get his shoulders square to Daniel Bellinger, and then get it over the top of this player. That's not easy to do. And he makes it look pretty effortless to get it over him for this easy touchdown. But the pick, everything that kind of goes into this, you have a defender who's not accounted for. So you're stealing, you're winning numbers by not accounting for him for that split second. You only block him for a second and then you release, fools the defense, easy pitch and catch. And he does a good job of executing the double fake and then flipping his hips and still getting the ball out. It reminded me a little bit of 
not similar from a depth standpoint, but the touchdown he threw to Bellinger against the Ravens last year, where he kind of hit that roll to his opposite shoulder on the left, flipped his hips back and just ripped the ball into Bellinger. Um, really good job, in my opinion, of doing that. I also think like looking at how the Panthers are aligned pre-snap, this was clearly a product of Brita being on the field instead of Barkley. Now you sub in the real games, Matt, uh, Saquon Barkley on the field. And these, they're especially in the red zone, there's going to have to be so many more defenders paying attention to Barkley. There's going to be set more, more tight, confined spaces and stacked boxes, which would lead to even more efficiency and opportunities for Kafka to run successful pass plays in the red zone. I'm sure we'll see that. And now we're going to have the Jalen Hyatt touchdown. Jalen Hyatt initially was aligned outside of, I believe, Paris Campbell, and he just motioned right here to the number three. And if we look at this pre-snap, have shotgun, you have the running back who's going to be to the one lone receiver side, three by one set. Who is going to cover Jalen Hyatt? There's no one out here except for this safety. Jalen Hyatt, by motioning from the outside inward, is isolating himself against a safety who is at an extreme depth. So now you're going to have two underneath routes from Paris Campbell and Isaiah Hodgins. who are going to occupy both of these with a switch release, which Mike Kafka loves to run. And now you have Jalen Hyatt against this safety. He's just going to lean inward with that stem and then explode out on a corner route for an easy touchdown. I want to also highlight Tyrod Taylor's throw here because Eric Gray gets him killed. But this is, again, just good scheming. And they caught the Carolina Panthers really sleeping because anytime you get Jalen Hyatt against a safety like that in space, good luck. I mean, that's just a really crappy situation for the safety. Yeah. And we saw a few of the things that you just went over that the giants found success with last year toward the end of the season, specifically against the Vikings when they were looking to create explosive pass plays. One was a switch release at the line of scrimmage. And two was an alignment in the stack that gives the wide receiver a free release. That's what we want to find for Jalen Hyatt. Free releases at the line of scrimmage, a safety who's in charge of defending him. there, playing that far off the ball. That is a super big mismatch for the giants when it's Hyatt versus somebody playing that kind of off coverage, because his speed will then dictate how the corner can play that player. In this case, the safety. I know a lot of people have discussed with me, Nick on Twitter. I put this play up how like, Oh, that's like a bad safety. He's like a backup, whatever he is, even though I think he is technically the Panthers starting safety. I think it's Eric Rowe um, who hasn't been good. I don't really care about that because what I'm looking at when I watch this play in my mind, at least is Hyatt's ability to sell that inside release and then flip his hips and go outside. While somehow in my opinion, as he kind of dips there and transitions, it's not only smooth looking, it looks to me almost like he creates acceleration coming out of that as he flips back toward the outside on that post corner route. It looks like right there, he plants, fakes, and then creates that acceleration and separation, which is crazy to me and shows off why the Giants were so high on him in the draft, why some people put, viewed him as a first-round prospect, why some people thought he was faster on film than he was at the Combine, where he ran, I think, at the low four fours. And I think a lot of that is his ability to separate and kind of accelerate into his break, in and out of his breaks. Um, and that's a really cool trait to see because that, in my opinion, that's going to work about ju against just about any safety in the NFL, Netflix, with the exception of maybe like prime Ed Reed. That safety is in a really tough spot. I don't care if it's Eric Rowe or it's or if it's Xavier McKinney or the best safety in the NFL. That is not a good position to be in, and most people are not going to have the ability to transition while moving backwards and keep up with the acceleration that Hyatt has coming out of that break. Yeah, it's, it's very, very smooth. And you could see how he sells that inside stem. He just explodes up the field, starts to lean, 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 flashes head, flashes hips. And by this point, if you look at the safety right now, he is on the hash with his hips completely oriented to the opposite side of the field. And then Hyatt just sticks his foot in the ground and just explodes out of the break wide open. 
it's not a great look for the safety, but I agree with you. I don't think a lot of safeties would have been able to cover that effectively. It's just really good uh, scheme right there and a, and a great job by the Giants to isolate a safety against one of the faster receivers in the league. And man, you, I got to tip my cap to Tyrod Taylor here because he gets murdered and gets this throw off. This is a like, that's a quick release. Look, he is the danger is eminent. He still has the football right here, man. And he right. gets nailed and he puts the football out there and it floats up there a little bit, but it doesn't matter because Hyatt just absolutely burns this. Cause that's a, that is a very, very impressive throw. Took a lot of poise, took a lot of balls, to be honest, to stand in there and take that hit and just deliver a touchdown pass. First touchdown pass for Jalen Hyatt. I, I really admired that from Tyrod. Yeah. And you look at Hyatt for uh, specifically on this one, a lot of people, a lot of discussion pre-draft and even after the Giants drafted him was on the things he couldn't do or the things he might not be able to do, but we really maybe should have considered, well, he's joining a top three coaching staff in our mind. So aren't they probably going to put him in position to do the things he can do well and minimize the things that he can't do well? And I think we'll see. He's not going to play every snap this year, most likely, unless injuries hit the Giants. But I think we'll see that when he's on the field, the Giants are doing things like they did on this play and putting him in position to get free releases with a lot of off coverage and the ability to just kind of get his feet going and get moving and pierce that secondary. Exactly. And if the Carolina Panthers played this differently, they had an intermediate option with Isaiah Hodges. Like say if they were in some sort of right. zone, like a cover four, and this defender decided to drop to a deep fourth along with this defender, and they could have converged on Jalen Hyatt. Jalen Hyatt would have just cleared out the middle of the field and it would have just been on Isaiah Hodgins to find the soft spot between these two linebackers, which Isaiah Hodgins has done so many times. So there's a contingency plan there. But Tyrod right. did a really good job processing this and realizing that he's going to have Hyatt wide open on the corner. And I like this play specifically because on this contingency plan that you outlined, it's a contingency plan that leverages the best throw Daniel Jones has in his arsenal, which is that deep dig, that deep intermediate area of the field over the middle. And that's something I think he can zip in anytime over the running, not anytime, but most of the time over the linebackers and between the safeties if they need him to. And that gives them that. And they're similar to the Waller play from earlier, the drop, like on that Yankee concept, like honestly, if he, with the way the safety was playing at depth, and with how that safety followed Waller over on that route, I'm talking about the one where Waller quote unquote dropped it. I think it was just a good hit and good play by the defense. You know, my definition of a drop is different than yours, Nick. I think a drop is only when he does when the receiver. You've never so had a you've never had a conversation with a wide receiver coach. Every wide receiver coach would tell you if it hits you in the hands, it's a drop. But I, I agree. Yes, it's a difficult it, catch. I'm not, I'm not faulting you by a defender though. I feel yeah, like no, I feel you. I feel you. Like even I feel the James you. Williams one, if the hand gets in between the ball and in between the hands and the ball, I almost feel like it's not. A, but whatever, that's not the point. The point I'm trying to make is if you watch that play, the safety who was playing wasn't playing at good depth anyway is following Waller on that over route. And if Daniel Jones just follows Waller with his eyes and then plants, flips his hit back and throws the the post to Hyatt, he has a shot there to hit a 70 yard touchdown too. And I know the Giants saw that on film, the coaches, and that. That could be something really interesting that we see in the regular season where Jones instead just says, screw this, I'm throwing the deep post, I'm going for it. And he beats the safety to the spot as, or even leads the safety with his eyes toward Waller on the crosser and takes the safety completely out of the play. The crosser, I think that was against a cover four type of look. You had the def defender who was coming from Darren Waller's side kind of crash down as, as long as as well as another defender who came and kind of sandwiched him. Very tough play for Waller. There was a lot of plays on that first drive. I don't have them all here where it was just Darren Waller just having the field cleared out by yeah. speed receivers. And we're right. going to see so much that we also saw air raid concepts. We saw three by one sets with Jalen Hyatt as the lone receiver, just running a drag with clear outs. That's something we're going to see. We saw it, I think, twice. And Jalen Hyatt couldn't elude the defender in space, but he's going to be able to do that occasionally. Yeah. And those air raid type of principles, man, somewhere, you know, 
rest in peace, Mike Leach. He's definitely smiling though. You know, he's air raid legend. And that shouldn't surprise us because if you listen to the post-draft stuff between Dable and Shane and whoever was speaking about it, they talked about how, you know, they he came from that system and they believed that they could use some of those concepts right away with Jalen Hyatt after drafting him. That's like goes into everything this this personnel grouping and these execs have done since taking over Shane and his crew. Every time they draft someone or make a free agent signing, they always have a plan in place for these players. It's not just based on like what they think would fit the system. It's based on the player and how his skill set fits the system um, specifically to what they want to do. And I like that you brought that up because that's something that they're not going to tip their hat and show much of in the preseason. They showed it twice, like you said, and that's going to be something they can use a lot more in the, in the regular season. And when they do, opposing DCs won't have film on it. One of my biggest concerns for the Giants offense in 2023 is simply if they run back a lot of what they ran last year now we have eight games of film on it, or whatever it is 16 games of film on it and even less so because they really didn't change that offense to like the mid-season point you always talk about the lions game texans lions that range so like eight games of film or so on that if they just run that stuff back i'm worried about opposing dc's no but no if they start to incorporate some things you discussed nick like the air raid concepts well now they have a lot less of that to work with and, I'm, and by they i mean the opposing defensive coordinators now let's get negative here for a second fifth round pick eric gray in pass protection like he's bad and i and get it you're you're a rookie running back it's very difficult it's the one primary thing that keeps you off the football field as a running back is if you can't pass protect i think he had three egregious misses in week one he might have had three more in this game there's two that really come to my mind and this this is one of them it's still in resulted in a touchdown pass but he goes up man and he just he goes i think that's Deion jones if i'm not mistaken He's too hesitant there to attack. And then he just lunges and he just gets swam right around getting his quarterback killed. And I'm just like, is this guy going to find the football field if he consistently does this? You can't put him out there if he's doing this and run these deep passing concepts because Daniel Jones is going to get killed. You just can't have that. You can't have it at all. It's interesting because... Think of how long it took Saquon Barkley to get good at pass protection. And I don't even think he's one of the best in the NFL right now, but he's definitely above average at this point. But it took a long time for him to get to where he was. He had some bad reps in his first couple of years as a pass protector. And now he's obviously gotten over the hump. But that just goes to show, I mean, he was an all-around complete back, touched by the hand of God, according to our former GM. And so obviously a touch by the hand of God kind of running back with a gold jacket on the way you know, gold hall of fame jacket on the way would be good in pass protection. You would think, but it's not that easy stepping right into the NFL. I think it's a processing thing from a mental standpoint. There's probably a lot to think about there, but you're right, Nick, the bottom line of it is dude, if he's not, if he's going to have this many bad reps in pass protection on tape, there's almost no way to use him because yeah, in an old system, like the Jason Garrett system, they probably could have found ways to use him, but this is a system with a lot of multitude to it. And this is a system where when the coaches put you on a field, they want to be able to have the defense guessing runner pass, not being able to have it tipped off by the personnel. And right now, if you have Eric Gray on the field, you are tipping off that it's going to be a run play or a design quick throw to him in the flat or like a screen or something like that. Either way, it's easier for the defense to scheme against you knowing this. And so in my mind, it's going to be really tough. And if he's not playing specials like returning punts, dude, I almost feel like, and I haven't brought this up to you, and I don't think it's going to happen, but like if you're ever looking for like the surprise would shock the world. Giants Twitter goes nuts. Cut. I think he's in the mix. I don't think he's going to get cut. So I want to make that clear. He was a fifth yeah. round pick. But with how good the seventh rounders are playing and them commanding roster spots almost guaranteed now, I think Jordan Riley's basically a lock. Trey Hawkins basically a lock for roster spots at this point, the six and seven rounders. It's probably changing and altering their plan a little bit because they may have went into this thing thinking, 
we'll see maybe one roster spot for those sixth and seventh rounders, if anything. Now there's two roster spots there and maybe one fewer roster spot to begin with. We already know Brightwell, who hasn't played a lot due to injury this preseason, is a much better special teams player than Gray. He's a much better pass protector than Gray. He's proven it in real game reps, not preseason and training camp, things that actually matter in my mind a lot more. I think he's in the discussion as the mega surprise, obviously, but surprise cut, because if he's not going to impact special teams, he's not going to be able to come on the field because he can't pass protect. What, you know, what are you actually getting there? You're getting a future back, hopefully a future 1B, based on what he can do between the tackles and if he gets better in pass pro. But until he gets good at pass pro, like you said, he's not going on the field for a lot of snaps. I think Deshaun Corbin looking pretty solid running between the tackles and outside and breaking tackles isn't helping Eric Gray. Ultimately, I agree with you, though. I do think he's going to make the team. I would be pretty surprised if they cut him, but this this pass protection thing is an issue. It really is. And you know that the coaching staff, Bobby Johnson, everybody, they're talking about his inability to do protect the passer because you're not going to be able to trust him in these situations. You know, that's obviously terrible, but I want to highlight one positive Can about Eric this before we go into that. Cause this is, we're going to okay. highlight Gray's best run of the, the game and Gray's best run of the preseason showed off his power. We always knew he had that low center of gravity and more power than he, his size suggests. But with the exception of this run, Nick, in your mind, taking away the pass protection issues, right. And the special teams, the stuff that helps you make the roster. Has Eric Gray looked as quick, explosive, decisive, elusive on tape this preseason to you as he did in the wide open Big 12 where defenders are just all over the place playing at crazy depth, a ton of 3-3-5 type fronts and crazy amounts of D-backs on the field? Because to me, he hasn't looked as strong. He hasn't looked the way I was hoping he would look right away in the preseason. And that's maybe, you know, not the greatest thing to say because even like you watch any of these rookies, Zach Charbonnet hasn't looked the way I hoped he would look, though he had a nice run in his last game. And maybe some of the other rookies. But then you look at some others like Tajay Spears, who had a really impressive yeah. run in his last game, and we knew we loved him. And some of these other backs who were drafted obviously a little higher and have a little bit more talent, but they look like they're hitting the ground running a little bit. What has kind of been your thoughts on Gray, independent of the pass pro, independent of the special teams, just as a runner? Did not have a chance in week one because yeah. the offensive line was terrible. So it's a very small sample size. I think Eric Gray is at his best when he is in the hole against the defender. We just haven't seen that too often because the line of scrimmage, is, there's been one mistake or multiple mistakes. Like For instance, I don't have the play cut up, but there was one play that Eric Gray might have broke off like an explosive run. It could have went for 20 yards, but Matt Parrott couldn't contain the backside pursuit defender, and the backside pursuit defender ended up crashing down the line of scrimmage and tackling Eric Gray for about a six-yard gain. Excellent block by Ben Bredesen and, and Evan Neal. I think it was Bredesen who was playing right guard at the time to clear out the four technique, or he might have been a four eye, climb up to the second level. I think that could have been one of those instances where we were like, this is a great job for Eric Gray because he hit the hole decisively, but he's not the fastest player. And it was just a bad block by Matt Parrott. But to circle back to your question, yeah, it hasn't been impressive. I don't think he's been put into the best position either, uh, specifically in, in game Great. In the, in the first game. And I also am wondering if it wasn't so egregious from a pass protection standpoint, would we be focusing on the lack of true excitement around the rushing ability? Because the play we're about to show, it's a great run. It's a great finish, I should say, by Eric Gray. But this is also a check in the box for Brian Dable, Mike Kafka, and Bobby Johnson, because as we brought up at the top of the show, a diversified rushing attack, wham blocks and getting 
offensive lineman free releases up to the second level. And that's exactly what happens on this touchdown run. And as I said earlier, Eric Gray isn't touched until he's like six yards down the football right. field. He is strong enough to run through arm tackles and just turn his legs and fall into the end zone, which is exactly what happens. Yeah, let's go over this play. So we have single back. So as you can see first, this is important because I think another thing that this Giants coaching staff does very well is they use tempo. So they're ex they're exercising tempo at this moment. You can see the ref just put the football down and he's backing up. So what do they do? Tyrod scans. He brings Daniel Bellinger in, sets up, and then the snap happens just like that. So the defense doesn't really have too much time to even account for the fact that Daniel Bellinger was split wide. And now he comes into this H-back, wing-back type of situation right behind Matt Parrott. And then you have the two-eye shade right over Mark Lewinsky's inside shoulder. So what's going to happen is Mark Lewinsky is going to handle the end man on the line of scrimmage. There's no one to the left of JMS. So the only threat from the three technique on the backside to the to Evan Neal is this two-eye technique. And everybody else is off the line of scrimmage behind the, the five-yard or in between the end zone and, and the five-yard line. So all you have to do is take care of this guy. And that's exactly what happens. So you have the wham block. Daniel Bellinger exercises that. And then look, JMS, Evan Neal, both up to the second level. And then you have Mark Lewinsky handle the end man on the line of scrimmage. Josh Azudu does a good job blocking this individual right there. Eric Ray's not contacted for like six yards. This is excellent scheming against this defensive front. And this is something that we saw late last season. And we're going to continue to see it. And I think we've heard the coaching staff attribute this to Bobby Johnson's creativity. And I think a lot of just praise should be heaped on Daniel Bellinger because this might look easy, but as we brought up when he was on our podcast, that is like a 280, <laughs> 290, 300 pound guy. And Daniel Bellinger, yeah, he's getting the angle on him, but he has to hold up and he does that. And look at the hole for Eric Gray. Now you have JMS up at the linebacker, Evan Neal up at the linebacker, both block. Look at that. When have you seen a hole that big, Dan? Not really. Not, not, not in recent times. And this is also a really good block by, by Azudu too, because this guy does a solid right. job like benching Azudu off of him and anchoring down, but Azudu kind of getting his hips over the top of him to create some sort of uh, like, like wall from between himself and where Eric Ray is going to be. So that's just a really excellently blocked up play and excellent scheme as well. And I expect to see this when the regular season comes around. And a nice job, in my opinion, by 73, Evan Neal finishing forward here and driving that defender yeah. back and just kind of moving his legs in that direction, using his weight to his advantage. Something we've said we want to see from Evan Neal more in year two. Wham blocks, man. Wham blocks can they just keep keep the defense honest. Keep the defense honest. Yep. You can see how this defender gets up field and he is no, he's like, oh, Mark Lewinsky's gonna block me. Oh, Mark Lewinsky's not there. Ah shit. Boom. No chance that you can get to Eric Gray. I love this. And it wasn't even a perfect play either because Glowinski didn't exactly execute his assignment to the best of his ability there. Uh, obviously, it's not an easy block to make in space, but like you can just see, even on a play like this, not everything has to be working perfectly. It's, it's just so well designed up front with JMS getting that free release to the second level and Bellinger executing the main block here, the wham block so well that you can, and, and you gave props to Zuda as well. We've talked about Neil, that you can get this kind of just free run into the secondary here. I mean, this was almost a walk-in touchdown. Yes. And one thing about Glowinski too. Yeah. It's not like <clears throat> the most perfectly executed block aesthetically wise, but look how he just kind of kicks up. Like he's just nifty with his feet. He knows how to like bucket step off the line of scrimmage on a zone block and orient himself well to frame his block and then execute it when he is a run blocker. So it's something about Mark Lewinsky. I just wish he was better in pass protection, but in terms of footwork and things of that nature, he positions himself well enough to at least allow the play to have a chance. Yep. 
All right, let's move on to some overall valuations of this game. Start with Daniel Jones here, Nick. I'll give my take and you can get into yours. One series for Jones. I thought he did a good job of kind of putting forth what he developed and put together in the preseason and training, or I'm sorry, in training camp and the joint practices into a real preseason game. And that was being more decisive with the football, something we saw a lot of in the second half of the season, getting the ball out on time and in rhythm with solid ball placement. All things were on point in this game. Obviously, not many difficult throws in this game for Jones. Everything was pretty close around line of scrimmage. The Hodgins throw, I think, was probably his deepest target of the game. Um, and on that throw, obviously, he's on the move, and Hodgins was open, as you broke down earlier. But that's fine if he's getting the ball out on time in rhythm with good ball placement because the ball is going to move forward in that regard. And the most impressive play for me for Jones by far in this game was the snap where it was second and 13 after they tried the Jalen Hyatt push pass. These Jalen Hyatt design touches haven't been so great so far. And it kind of it only concern for me there, Nick, is like everything that we tried with the exception of that touchdown run against Minnesota in the playoff game around the line of scrimmage like that has been blown up. It just like requires so much from your blocking and the screen stuff has not been the, the, the kind of, if you we're going to look for one knock on this coaching staff and there's not many, it would probably be the screens and everything like that because it hasn't been great so far. But after that negative play to come back on second and 13 and in the past. So first of all, Gowinski blow Gowinski and Neil's side blow the stunt up front and Gowinski lets his guy just kind of loop in free pass rush right on Jones in the past, man. We've seen two things happen here. We've seen either one Jones take the sack or, and this is way past, you know, back in the Garrett days or even further back Jones, take a sack Jones, throw it away. Jones, throw ill advised. We've also seen at times Jones just roll fully to his right and to the point where he's just moving laterally to the sideline. The whole field is cut off in half. Maybe a receiver will come open, unlikely, because the entire defense is flowing in that direction. But on this play, what I thought was cool is he avoided the – he had the pocket manipulation and the pocket presence to avoid that initial free rusher that Glowinski gave up on the stunt. And then instead of bailing right, he kind of, like, asset, reassessed the situation in real time, understood where Evan Neal and his passer, and his man was, his edge rusher, and then planted and cut back inside of Neal to his left and then moved uh, vertically up the pocket that way. He turned it into what, like a six yard rush, nothing crazy, but you take a blown play that could have either been third or 13 or worse. And you turn it into third and manageable third and seven. And that kept the drive alive because the giants converted on the very next play. And it's just that level of pocket manipulation and pocket feel that has taken such a big jump in Jones's game. And it continues to improve in my opinion, because that little quick thing that he showed there, that ability to not just bail right to kind of reassess where Neil was and then cut back inside. It was next level stuff. I thought it's also knowing where you are on the football field in relation to the closest defenders and what those defenders did post snap. Cause you could see, he looks at that linebacker linebacker drops into his own coverage. And he also is aware that Mark Lewinsky and Evan Neal are dealing with a twist up front. And when the defense twists, what happens? They're exchanging gaps. They're stunting. So they're not going to have as much gap integrity if they get too far upfield, which is exactly what Jones realized when he stepped up away from Mark Lewinsky's defender. And then he's like, oh, Evan Neal's up there. That defender's way too far upfield. I can step up, still keep my eyes down the football field, run horizontally to the line of scrimmage, and then either fire the football or pick up a couple yards. And he did more than that. He picked up six yards. But you can even see he is extending the play along the line of scrimmage, seeing if anybody's going to break open. That's another thing that Daniel Jones has done significantly better than, than anything that we saw prior to last season was keeping his eyes downfield when the bullets are flying. And we saw a little bit on that play as well.
Yeah, and I thought it was a good decision as well because despite keeping his eyes downfield, he understood that anything that he could have attempted to throw at that point was going to be a net negative and put the ball in danger. Instead, take the six yards with your legs or whatever it was, seven yards with your legs, and put yourself in a third and manageable. So that was the standout play for me. The rest of it was good. It was good to see him get the ball out quickly on time and rhythm. A lot of good scheme by the coaching, but that was an individual play I thought he made that was really good. In addition to, obviously, the Hodgins throw, which was a nice ball that I thought came out with good velocity, a tall ball, high on the receivers, outstretched hand so he can make a hands catch and then transition upfield. And I think Hodgins got an extra eight yards after the catch there. That was a big factor in why he was able to get so much yak was the throw by Jones. A lot of the ball placement, too, was just spot on. It was right on the upfield shoulder. It was where it needed to yep. be away from the defender, maximize yards after the catch for the receiver. So, yeah, I was impressed with Daniel Jones. And the offensive line, too, man, they looked a lot better than they did in preseason week one against the Detroit Lions. And I'm glad that we got to see Evan Neal. I, I did a evaluation of Evan Neal. If anybody wants to go check it out on Big Blue View, just breaking down some of his plays. I thought he looked more confident, more poised. I felt like his feet were a little bit cleaner. He was handling counter moves and secondary moves, I would say, adequately to to well. He got beat around the outside shoulder a couple different times. He had the one twist that he uh, allowed for, for a sack on Tyrod Taylor on his last play. But he also handled several twists well, too. So it, it was kind of hit or miss. He got just sucked too far inside. I'll say one thing. I was impressed. I liked what I saw. I think it's encouraging. He was going up against guys that might not make the NFL, though. He's, he wasn't going up against yeah. Brian Burns. So that's one thing that I think, I'm, you know, we, we still need to reassess and see. But it was an encouraging start for for the second year player in his second season. And hopefully we're, we want that Andrew Thomas jump, right? If he if he can have, what, 50% of what Andrew Thomas did from year one to year two, that's an excellent situation for the Giants. It would be. And I thought in general, he was quicker out of his stance. That was what stood out the most to me. Just looked more comfortable getting out of his stance. But I also thought, like you said, there were some moments that, you know, gave me some flashbacks to the rookie season when as far as the right side of the line being Gowinski and Neal with some stunts and twists up front that just weren't handled that well. And that was a killer for the Giants last year. And I'm hoping that will improve this year. But and he did, like you said, it had a couple good reps and a couple bad reps. But again, these are all against bad players. Like he had, the Panthers didn't play Brian Burns. They didn't play their big guys. They didn't play Derek Brown on the interior defensive line. That kind of hurt our evaluation of John Michael Schmitz and 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 Ben Bredesen and Josh Zudo and the interior guys and Gowinski for that matter. So it was better, I thought, but I still am. The jury is open if there is going to be a big jump there for for Neil. And I think we're not going to get a chance to actually see it until the regular season when he has to face up against Demarcus Lawrence. And then that's the big or and sometimes obviously Micah when they when they flip sides there. That's going to be the big, big test. And I just don't think we're we have any idea right now what that's going to look like just yet. He did look patient, though. And that's one thing that I wanted to see from him. Don't overreact and lunge. Let the contact come to you and then engage and time it up well. There was only a couple snaps where he misjudged that, mistimed it. And the thing about Evan Neal that's excellent is sometimes that can happen. And he's so damn long and he is athletic that he can flip his hips and then just use his length to push the defender outside of the pocket and up the pass rushing arc, which we saw, I think, once or twice in this game too. But man, no one runs through Evan Neal. You can't run through him. Right. His anchor is is exceptional. He just absorbs that contact, sits back, and then just holds you up. And that wasn't really an issue for him last season either. It wasn't like Evan Neal was just getting blown through. It's a, you can't go through the mountain. You got to go around it. And that's where Evan Neal struggles. Is He's just framing his blocks when these guys like Hassan Reddick try to go around him. And that's it's one thing I'm a little bit worried about, but we'll have to wait and see, obviously. Yeah, we'll have to see because the real worry is not even just like what it means for Evan Neal and his one-on-ones. It's like, what does it mean for the Giants coaching staff, right? Like if Evan Neal is not being, if you can't trust him out on that island, 
it limits so much of what you're going to yeah. be able to do from a schematic standpoint. We saw all this fun stuff already. We expect even more fun stuff schematically in the regular season. Well, that's only possible if you can trust your right ta your two tackles. They obviously trust Andrew Thomas. Will they be able to trust Evan Neal? That remains to be seen. I definitely think there were signs of improvement, though, too. So hopefully that continues over. Let's look at let's move on to the next part of the offensive line. No need to discuss Andrew Thomas in my mind. And I'm sure you agree with that. That's locked in and he's fine. Um, more than fine. He's elite. Uh, let's say JMS and the, and the interior guys. What, what did you see from those guys? I felt like the interior guys had a much better game. That's Ben Bredesen and Josh Azudu. In terms of JMS, I feel like maybe the game wasn't as crisp as week one, but it was fine. There was there was nothing that was a huge indictment. I think he allowed, what, one or two pressures, one that really comes to my mind where he didn't frame his block perfectly and they kind of slid off and the defender just ran right into the pocket. I don't remember exactly who the quarterback was. But other than that, I felt like he was moving well. He finished this one block with authority driving the defender I might have been shy Tuttle but it could have been just a backup as well just drove him into the dirt I, I love that tenacious attitude that he brings to the football field it just reminds me of his college tape so I uh I came away like okay you know nothing too Im overly impressive but nothing that really gave me any sort of hesitancy to be like oh crap that's an issue yeah, I think you broke that down well. The play that stood out to me was the play that we already went over, the the um, not bright, well, the gray nine-yard touchdown run. I just thought he had a different level of athleticism moving to the next level, and that's something we saw on his tape at Minnesota too. And by different level, I mean versus what the Giants have had at that position between, obviously, Nick Gates in the past, who was solid but not at that level of athleticism, and um, Feliciano last season, and then you know dating back Jalapeo and all those guys. Like He just moves pretty effortlessly when he's going to the second level. He does. The one play, second quarter, 625 left. It was a first and 10. I think a holding call ended up happening, but it wasn't JMS. He got hit by a power move and just tossed aside. And I only saw that happen once in his college football tape. And I think it was against like Indiana. It was a random game where he just got clubbed and then and then his quarterback ended up getting sacked. And I was like, Ugh, what the hell is that? Struggled with power moves. Not like 2020 Shane Lemieux. Don't worry, everybody. But it was a little bit... Uh, out of normal. It wasn't a normal thing that we, we typically see with John Michael Schmitz. And he also had another one where he, he went to go block. I think like, I think it was blocking a, it was maybe a three technique it was somebody outside of him. So he had to lunge out of his stance and he kind of got clubbed away from the block as well. So let that yeah. be cleaned up a little bit, but I'm not overly worried. Yeah. He can, he'll be able to clean that up. I think, um, Okay, let's. We already discussed Hyatt on his breakdown. We discussed a little Hodgins, ciliary pieces. How about Darren Waller? We haven't spent that much time yet on <laughs> Darren Waller. I think the play that stands out for me the most is the play where they had Darius Slayton kind of clear out and take a defender out of the play. And Darren Waller had a bit of a really interesting route. This was a third down conversion from Jones to Waller. And I thought Waller kind of showed why, despite being, you know, as long as he is and tall as he is and explosive as he is straight line, he also has that lateral agility that makes him such a, such a special athlete and such a special weapon on the field. He did a really good job. I know it's a linebacker, but he did a really good job of creating separation at the top of his route there and presenting a wide open target for Daniel Jones. That was an easy, easy pitch and catch. And you could, you know, give credit to the coaching. I, I like the design. I like the Slayton used there to kind of clear out the, the defender who then eventually they rotated back to safety in to make the tackle, but our safety broke down to make the tackle. But when you get 
that situation, you still need the receiver, whoever it is, the tight end of the receiver to win that route himself. Like it's still an individual player creating that separation from the linebacker or safety, whoever's in position there, whoever's in conflict. And Waller did create that. And so that was the play that really stood out to me. Yeah, obviously he looked good on all of his catches, but that was the one that really stood out the most. The second and four where he has the free access with from the backside of the three by one set, he just has free access. So it's just, I'm going to go into this. Uh, I'm going to catch a snap from Daniel Jones and the running back is going to go as a fast four to the three receiver side. The linebacker is going to follow him, just creates a throwing window. So it's just on Darren Waller to win inside against somebody who's up in press against him. And he like knocked the, cornerback over i thought it was going to be opi but they're like ah whatever it's Derek Waller. he's really good yeah i know that should have been opi <laughs> I mean, look we know how these rules are called and now we have one of those guys at least who like we're exactly. gonna get the benefit of the doubt because the giants didn't have that last year now you'll be allowed we'll see a couple times a year where where our Waller just like pushes a dude in the face mask it almost looked like and creates the separation simply off an extension of the arm which is uh, apparently okay for uh, receivers just not corners of course not, because corner uh, defense, it sucks for them. But that, that was another excellently scheme play because you're just making the defense react to you right before the snap and you're creating a one-on-one. -on -one. Just trust your guy to win inside. And what have we talked about a lot? We're going to see a lot of Darren Waller as the backside number one and three-by-one yep. sets. That was one of the, the little details that. of that play too. make it happen too. I thought was interesting. Like they have the right tackle there, Evan Neal executing a cut block and you could see he didn't really land the cut block. He was trying to, but what he did was force the defensive end. I'm thinking of the right play. I think it was this one. Yep. Yep. Defensive end to kind of jump back a little bit. Then when that defensive end did try to get his hand in the passing lane, he was a little too far to his left and couldn't get his hand back. Right. To, to break up the pass in that passing lane, because that little detail of the play design to have the right tackle there, go for the cut block and try to take that defensive and out of the passing lane. Yeah, I, I think the the schematic advantage that Darren Waller gives the New York Giants is something that we have we we just haven't seen as Giant fans. We, we really haven't. A tight end like overstated. that. It just cannot be overstated, especially with a coaching staff like this one that really knows how to maximize that advantage that you're referring to. So that is the most exciting thing, I think, about this Giants team going into the 2023 season. Let's wrap up with a little bit of discussion on the running backs here. We talked a little earlier about Gray. Pat, uh, you talked a little bit about Corbin, who's been impressive, but my problem with the Corbin impressive stuff, Nick, is that it's going against the third teams, and yeah. I just don't really love to make much of that because it's just so un unapplicable to the regular season where you're just never going to get third team. You're let alone never going to get second team defenders. Um, then Brightwell. Let's talk about Brightwell, right? Let's talk about how this running back room stacks up after Brita because it's really interesting. Honestly, dude, they spend a fifth round pick on Gray, which leads most of us to believe that he's kind of like a roster lock. But at the same time, Gary Brightwell, to me, was pretty underrated in 2022 in actual real games, not preseason, not joint practices, not practice against your own team with no hitting and training camp. Like in real games on film from 2022, Brightwell was good on specials, really good on specials. And Brightwell was good as a runner, I thought, too. So to me, like I look at the depth chart behind Brita and to me for my RB3 right now is Brightwell. I really think Brightwell is the third most important running back on this roster. But is there a chance that he might get the boot because of this injured preseason and because they want to keep Gray under contract, at least after using a fifth round pick? It's interesting spot. I don't, I'm curious how many burning backs you think they're even going to roster. I would say three if I'm a betting man. Uh, I so like what I see. The one is definitely out because they're not cutting Brita. No, they're not cutting Brita. Barkley, obviously. I could argue for, but man, it's such a tight cut. It really yeah. is with all these wide receivers, with all the defenders that they're going to want to keep with guys like Jordan Riley ascending, like maybe the giants initially thought 
your practice squad, right? No, like this guy's going to make the team. And then you factor in TJ Davidson. Is he automatically a cut? Do they want to groom some of these young interior defensive linemen to see what they have after Ashawn Robinson and Nacho aren't here anymore? There's, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. That's why I think maybe three, especially if the Giants want to keep four tight ends. Like, that, right. There's an argument there, right? Like, do you want to keep a Chris Meyer? Do you want to keep a Tommy Sweeney? What's going to happen with the, the tight end room and, and how you incorporate them into the backfield? Because a lot of those guys operate as fullbacks sometimes. You know, Daniel Bellinger is going to assume that role too. So if it is three, then I think Eric Gray would make it, but I don't think the Giants would feel overly comfortable. So let's say it is four. Gary Brightwell hasn't been there, man. Like, I would say he's going to get Wally pipped, but he, he's never really had the job to begin with. It was up in the air to start. And if he's not out there in training camp and Deshaun Corbin is playing well, and I would say Eric Gray, but he's not at the moment, then what's to say the Giants aren't going to give Corbin that nod? There's one play that that Corbin, like, it, it impressed me. And I think he's just looked shifty in space, but it was a nine-yard run, quarter four, 11.48 left. And it was just like an inside zone run where he hit the hole, but he had to be patient. And you could see him allow the blocks to develop and he waited for the crease and then he just exploded through it. I almost put it on Twitter and I think I just forgot to, but it was just a nine-yard run where I was like, that's a very smart run by a running back, just a little detailed. And it wasn't obvious that that was where he should have went, but you could see that he was utilizing his vision and his patience. And this is a UDFA from Florida State. I know a lot of people in the industry who were high under, who was high under Sean Corbin and we saw some flashes from him in preseason, but he didn't, we didn't really think he was going to make the team last year in preseason last year. This year, I feel like there's a little bit more there and with Eric Gray lacking it. It at least lends me, it, it at least points me in the direction to say, this is a real conversation to be had. Ultimately, I don't think he's going to make the team over Eric Gray though. And I think the giants really kind of forcing Eric Gray to be the punt returner is also just like, Hey, you're going to, you're going to be safe. Yeah. They need to find some utility for him in year one, for sure. Um, yeah. As you mentioned, but it is interesting about Corbin because he was actually Emory Hunt's number one running back in that class, which is crazy, mm. but to some people, but I like that Emory Hunt just goes by it. Like he doesn't have, he doesn't look at like mock, you know, the consensus rankings. He just goes by the film that he sees. And I would love to see Corbin get a little bit of a chance against the jets this week to play with some of the better and not better, yeah. but like people who are actually going to be blocking in, <laughs> in the season for the giants, not against these third team, second team guys that are most likely not going to play. I'd like to see him with Bredesen. I'd like to see him with John Michael Smith. If Neil plays this game, Neil and all those guys, even Parrot, cause they're not going to play Thomas in this game. Most likely. I just like to see him run against second team defenses or first team defenses with a better offensive line. Cause it's just so much harder to figure out what they have in Corbin against these third teamers. In his defense, though, he has Jack Anderson and Harlow and, and those types of players blocking. Yeah, right. So we're still finding rushing room despite that. Sure. And that's fair to be. That's that's definitely, you know, he, he has. You can look at it like that for sure. I just want to see him against more speed on defense, if that makes sense, because it's just so much harder for him to see if that speed actually checks out against these third teamers. Of course. I'm right there with you, man. All right. That's all we have for today on the offensive side of the ball. Obviously, we use some film clips that we cut up this week. We're going to see where that goes. We're going to try to use more of that, obviously, in the regular season and the rest of the preseason as well. So keep it locked and loaded for those of you who enjoy that. And if you're listening now because you decided, well, last week there was no video, well, you can go over, head over to YouTube and watch and hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the share button. Please hit the like button. If you're still here, why have you not hit the like button yet? We need these videos to get likes. It pains me when I click on these videos and they have like 6,000 views and 132 likes. It just pains me because when I watch a video on YouTube that I enjoy and Lord knows I've been watching a lot of golf videos lately, I hit like <laughs> and I hit subscribe because that's what you do to support a channel. It takes you two seconds. It's completely free. 
you have a little bit of energy exposed by moving your hand towards a mouse and hit mm -hmm. clicking. But I will lend you, you, please lend me that energy that you have to use to help us grow. So yeah, just please do that. Obviously, if you haven't already, subscribe, auto-download, and leave a five-star review on iTunes. Otherwise, great, it's your week. Defensive Film Breakdown will be on its way to... The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com